There's a couple of events that we want to look at here uh, in our study of the Lord's ministry. Uh, the first is very brief, so we will be doing some flipping back and forth. It's the, uh, the first part of it, the event is entitled, The Coming of the Son of Man. We're still looking at the preaching the Lord is doing here. And then we will conclude this lesson looking at, tra at the transfiguration. <clears throat> if you look at Mark chapter 8, verses 38 through Mark 9, verse 1, it says, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. This parallels with Matthew chapter 16, verses 27 through 28, which says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then uh, this event, it's all three synoptic, synoptic gospels. Luke 9, verses 26 to 27 is our third parallel, which says, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me, Jesus speaking, and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Jesus here, just again, a brief note here because the transfiguration is really a much bigger part of this outline. He, he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. We know this. We have the benefit of time. Uh, the church should know this. He's been kind of talking about it. They may not specifically know it's Jerusalem where it's going to happen, uh, but that he's beginning to teach more specifically that this has to happen. Uh, we know that he's, he was quoted early on as saying that the only sign that uh, the vipers would receive is the sign of Jonas. So we, he's already been alluding to and presenting the fact of his death, burial, and resurrection. <clears throat> but here we're starting to get into the details. And as the twelve walked with him, they had a, a variety of experiences to prepare them for their coming ministry. Because this wasn't just... Uh, the Lord saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die over and over and over again. He's preparing them. He's established for them that they are his church built on him as a foundation. Uh, we saw that earlier in Matthew 16, that he had selected them, that he was perfecting them, that he was building them upon himself to carry forth this ministry. We see a, a climax of sorts in our Lord's words about discipleship and promises his return and glory. He confirmed these words by showing that promised glory to Peter, James, and John, as we're going to see in the next portion of text. This glory was described after his resurrection by John, and it's the most uh, attested event in the Bible, because not only do the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, declare in vivid detail these events, but we also see in John chapter 1, verse 14, a confirmation that it happened and Peter also writes it on it in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 through 18 so if you'll allow me to I'm going to just bring these two events together into one lesson in John chapter 1 verse 14 John wrote and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth and that we beheld his glory part is making reference to what they're about to see in this next portion of text Peter wrote of it, as I mentioned, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. 
For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. This is the only recorded instance during our Lord's ministry of his revealing his inner glory for others to see. It was really a confirmation of the kingdom that God has promised to his people that we just read there in Matthew 16, verse 28. Now we'll deal with the actual text that covers the transfiguration. The transfiguration in the region of Caesarea Philippi. If you'll look again back to Mark, picking right up where we left off, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. It says, And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an, whole, up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured. So the reason I started by giving you John's mention of it is because he was there. Peter's mention of it is because he was there. And now we're going to have the alignment of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who none of these were actually there at the event. They would have received this, uh, this testimony, as you'll see in a moment, after his resurrection. But they recorded it here in place, in time, as far as chronologically speaking, when it happened in the ministry. <clears throat> He says that he leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured, which Strong's defines as changed into another form, to transform or metamorphosis. He was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so, uh, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And a fuller is one who would have clean, cleaned or cleansed wool. And it's saying here that this white is indescribable. It's, it's not manufacturable. It can't be done by even the best of those who would uh, seek to clean wool and make it this white. It just couldn't be possible. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and, uh, and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. Remember, tabernacles is like a tent or a booth. For he wist not what to say, for they were so afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more save Jesus, only with themselves. And this lines up with what Peter said they heard on the top of the mountain that we just read in 2 Peter 1. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Lines up also with what the father had conveyed at the baptism. When the Holy Spirit as a dove descended down, we heard the same words. Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew's account, if you'll turn back over to Matthew 17 verses 1 through 8. It says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And this gives a little bit different description. If you have my notes, you'll see I've, I've underlined it again, uh, the differences between the accounts. And it says here that his face did shine as the sun, which is a description that Mark didn't give us. And his raiment was white as the light. And behold... There appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. 
Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt let us make thee make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And then here's a new part as well. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Luke 9, the last of the really five accounts that show that this happened, Luke 9, verses 28 through 36. Dr. Luke writes, And it came to pass, and now he says about eight days after these sayings, I will deal with that in just a minute, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. As he prayed, the fashion of his countenance, or his face, was altered, which is what we just read about in Matthew's account, and his raiment was white, which we heard about in Mark's account, and Dr. Luke adds glistering, which means, according to Strong's, to flash out like lightning, to shine, or to be radiant. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Again, all of this is new as far as Dr. Luke writing it and no one else. Uh, and I'm not saying new because it's not true. I'm just saying it's more details for what the three of them were talking about, what Elias and Moses and the Lord were talking about. And it was, of course, what he had been teaching about. And this is the revelation that it will occur in Jerusalem. They spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. Again, new detail. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him. Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider this moment, this transfiguration that many of us likely know very much about, help, uh, help my words, Father, that I would... Uh, bring to light the order of events, the, perhaps any reasoning that you might permit for us to understand of what, what took place here. Help us to see the symbolism. Help us to see the importance of these three witnesses. Help us to see the importance of the three uh, communing in such light and in such majesty and glory, Father. Help us, Father, to be more grateful for that which you have poured forth so freely. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I read Luke's account last, and it does give us a few details that maybe um, sequentially helps us out a little bit here. One, Peter's uh, offer to make tabernacles or booths or tents for these three seems to occur after they have departed. Uh, and, and this really shows Peter's heart. It, it's not necessarily, and even though it does say here not knowing what he said, it's not necessarily that he's being ignorant. His desire is for them to stay. It's a type of motive for him. Is we'll build tabernacles. Whatever we, this is an amazing moment, an amazing thing, and, and he's excited about it. What do we have to do that they would stay? And we see a little bit before that maybe why he feels that way. Oh, sleeper. Oh, Jonah. Their flesh was weak. Their spirit might have been willing, but they were adrift. 
Sounds here like they were heavy with sleep, as it says in the text. And then we see, and when they were awake. So they've missed some of this. So maybe it's guilt, maybe it's conviction that's driven Peter to say, what do we have to do? Do we have to build a habitat or a place for them to stay and dwell that we might make up for what we've missed? Uh, that we've been maybe poor hosts or poor guests at the top of this mountain and for this moment. Uh, and I don't think we should jump to the conclusion that, well, Simon Peter and James and John are just lazy and they just can't stay awake. That's, that's not necessarily what's happening here. They're beholding, for one thing, they're beholding something that none of us could even imagine for a moment. Listen to the descriptions again that we see here. The raiment that Jesus is wearing, according to Mark 9, exceeds the whiteness of snow. It's so white, no fuller has ever been known to clean wool that white. We see from Matthew's account that the face of the Lord shined as a sun. And I don't believe this is like Moses' face shining when he returned from the mount that had to be covered. Moses was more like the moon, if you recall our study through creation, in that he was reflecting light that the generator of light had impressed upon him. Here, the Lord is that generator. At best, he's reflecting light that he got directly from the Father. But it's likely that he is, since he refers to himself as the light of the world. So what they're seeing here is the whitest gown imaginable with the, a brightness to his face that remark, remarkably impresses upon Matthew here, that of the sun. And Dr. Luke describes his raiment as not only being white, but glistering or flashing out or shining or radiating such brightness. That in itself would have been an amazing experience, possibly overstimulating the senses of these three mere fishermen who were there on the mountain with the Lord Jesus that day. Factor in the fact that they seem to know who these two are that the Lord's speaking to. I imagine it was a lot to take in. So I just caution you before we read this and the other events, of course, in which they were encouraged, the same three, to stay awake and pray, and they couldn't, that they were going through a spiritual warfare that we have no idea the depths of. I understand this isn't a battle per se, but what did those three take up there with them? The flesh. They were battling with the very inescapable prison that we're born with. They're trying to bear witness to something their flesh wants nothing to do with, that their flesh is constantly warring against, and here it is right before them. How did the woman approach the Lord in the throng? She had to chant to herself, if I could but touch his hem, if I could but touch the hem of his garment, if I could but touch the hem of his garment. And despite what we heard last night, uh, they're not healed because they lay claim to the garment. They're healed by the virtue that's passed through the garment. That was a decision of the Lord's. For those who are with me, I, as your pastor, have to rectify a few things. But understand, these three men took up their own worst enemy, themselves, their fallen selves, and what they were bearing witness to was too much for the flesh to behold. They were, in, in all intents and purposes, at hand-to-hand -hand combat with their own flesh while this is happening before them. They got enough out of it to, that five different writers have been able to portray the, 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 the wonderment of it. Um, but I believe they got out of it exactly what they were permitted to get out of it as well. So let us first deal with the fact that Dr. Luke says eight days, the other two say six. 
Uh, and John and Peter, of course, don't speak to that at all. John Trapp writes, Matthew and Mark put exclusively those days only that went between and were finished. But Luke puts the two utmost days also into the reckoning, which likely means the day they left and the day they concluded. Husbands, wives, it's a lot like how long we think it took to do something and how long she thinks it took to do something. There's nothing here to make a big deal out of. It's not something necessarily a theologian needs to build a platform on. But we do need to understand why one would say this and one would say that. Uh, and it's just simply counting the days in which they left and arrived compared to just counting the day's journey in between. Look at what these three witnesses, just after Jesus told the church how important it was that they be unashamed of him and attend to his teaching, look at what they witnessed. And, and that's the beauty of doing this study in context chronologically to the best of our ability, is we get to see what he's been teaching and then almost immediately what they're experiencing. You know, they, they went through the experience of uh, those feedings, and it wasn't consecutive lessons, but they were pretty close together, the 5,000, the 4,000, and so on, and then immediately feeling guilty that they didn't bring bread of themselves, and they, they were missing a lesson on the dangers of the leaven. There's a, a sequence to these things that is a great blessing when we line them up this way. And here, we actually get it in the same lesson. Uh, he, last time we were together, we talked about how he was preaching about his death, and Simon Peter rebuked him. Here, he's still talking about the coming of the Son of Man. He's talking about the kingdom to come. He's talking about how important it is that we be unashamed of what it is he's called for us to do. And we see here what these three were permitted to witness eight days later. What an amazing thing. What, what, what might we also miss out on as he declares for us today to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and so much the more as we see the day approaching, Hebrews 10.25. What will we also miss out on when for even a moment we live slightly ashamed of the Lord? Now, we, when we talked about the disciples, we talked about how there was an inner circle. We're seeing it now really for the first time. Simon, Peter, James, and John are usually in there. Sometimes Andrew's lumped in there, but most of the time it's these three. We don't really have a, a lot of reasons as to why, but it could be part of this. It could have been some of that ashamedness. It could have been, same with Luke, not witnessing the Lord's first uh, revealing after his crucifixion. He wasn't where he should have been. Is that not the case for us sometimes? And I just simply want to point out here that following hard on a lesson about being unashamed of the Lord is this immediate opportunity to witness the Lord in such majesty talking with Moses and Elias. I don't know that we should take that lightly. I bet these three were, were not too eager to miss the next opportunity to get together. Would you be? If you witnessed, if one came forward today and said the Lord had saved them, you probably would go a good month or so not missing services, right? And he, did, he just saved somebody. And we're going to have a baptism. We're going to put them under the water. They're going to join the church. How exciting is this? I mean, when Derek and Mandy made their announcement, people didn't miss for at least a couple of weeks. And those who weren't there that night didn't know for months. What, mess, what blessings do we miss when we forsake what the Lord has commanded for us to be unashamed of? Spurgeon wrote, Did the little company of three know from one Sabbath to another, which is essentially the time that passes here, that such an amazing joy awaited them? They should have. This was the Messiah. Simon Peter confessed as such two lessons ago, and the Lord said that it was revealed unto him by the Father. 
So we can say, oh, well, we didn't know what we were going to miss. Yes, you did. You knew who Jesus was. You knew who Jesus was. Spurgeon goes on and says, the three were elect out of the elect and favored to see what none else in the world might behold. Doubtless our Lord had reasons for his choice as he has for every choice he makes, but he does not unveil them to us. The same three beheld the agony in the garden. Perhaps the first sight was necessary to sustain their faith under the second. I like what Spurgeon has there at the end. And I don't want to jump ahead in our study, but for those who know the agony in the garden, it would make a lot of sense that this revelation was for them so that they would understand or even be strengthened for what they are about to witness later. Um, those who know how James, John, and Peter found their end in the flesh at the end of, the, at the end of their lives might also reckon that maybe there was a strengthening here. Consider how they, they witnessed, each, all three of them witnessed the crucifixion differently too. And, and we don't know a lot about what was going on with the disciples, which we'll get there, during the actual crucifixion, but we do know where John was, and we do know what Simon Peter was going through, two of the three that we have right here. This event, as you can see from what we've quoted from, is one of the most attested events in the life of Jesus. Not only do we have the three synoptic gospel accounts, but uh, what we read above from John and Peter as well, who were literally there. With that being said, we are not given enough to know which mountain this was. If, if ever details like that, or when was he born, or things of that nature, were of the most crucial detail, and I, I'm going to throw out there, God is able to do everything. But if we were somehow convinced that we don't know exactly when he was born because God couldn't tell us, let's squash that right now. Five different writers said this happened, and none of them said where, because it's not important. God literally gives us the details that are important, and we can't handle them. When he doesn't give us details, we shouldn't go chasing after them. We shouldn't theorize or throw darts in the map and then try to support that. We should simply accept what the Lord has given us. It's inspired. It's his living word. And that's all we really need to say about that. Spurgeon does state that, uh, <laughs> towards a couple of theories, that Brodus declared it can't be Mount Tabor or Tabor. Spurgeon states that Hermon is a possibility, but it cannot be confirmed. Spurgeon only confirmed that it was a lone and lofty hill. And I might add to that, so is the theory that you'll ever figure out which hill it was. Lone and lofty. Lone and lofty is where men's traditions usually dwell. So be careful with lone and lofty hills. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Come now and let us reason together. Saith the Lord, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though, like, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We might have before today's lesson read that and said, Can this be? Is that possible? And the Lord confirms it. The Lord in his beauty, in his own raiment, literally expresses the exact promise Isaiah begins. This is Isaiah 1. He writes about a lot of difficult things, but in Isaiah 1.18 is literally proven here by five different writers that indeed there's a whiteness that can't be described. Can we be white one day? Oh, my notes are all a mess here. I don't know what I was trying to say here. Can, can, can we sin one day and be white as snow the next? White as snow such as our Lord here and that no fuller on earth can do? Do we not see long departed saints communing with the Savior here? Again, that, this shouldn't be a point that's lost on us. They saw two who were known as men 
communing with an all-white and glistering and as bright as the sun, Lord and Savior. There's a lot of questions suddenly answered. Can man ever dwell with Christ Jesus? When the afterlife, there's two that do. They commune with him. They know facts about his mission that they're talking to him about, the when and the where. Can we ever dwell in, in, in with, his, with his infinite holiness and our unholiness? No. But what's illustrated here is that there is an afterlife. There is a resurrection of sorts. We also see that Jesus is communing with two that we know not to be alive anymore, which means he must cross this barrier somehow between the living and the dead. See, and following this in order, they're no longer trying to figure out who he is. We just settled that three lessons ago. He's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Blessed art thou, Simon of Barjona, for it is revealed unto you by the Father. So we know who he is. And now he's revealing to these three just an iota. And it's probably like what we said recently about Habakkuk 2 and the majesty of the earth. It's probably concealing more than it's revealing. But just in this iota of a picture of his holiness at transfiguration, it's confounding what's being taught. And we know from Luke they slept through part of it. Does that not blow your mind? That we can't even figure out what they saw in between sleeping. And there was more to it. So much more to it. Did they not even did they not even then enjoy near access to Christ even after death? They are the same in that their names and personas were intact, and yet to dwell in his presence in even a closer fellowship than this elect three of the church, they too must be freed from their depravity. Praise the Lord. This means the promise of perpetuity is real. These three Baptists believed in the promise of perpetuity because they see two there who, I mean, one, <laughs> Moses, you think of what he went through leading the nation of Israel, what he went through with his own flesh, what he went through with his father-in-law, and we're going to get into all that, Lord willing, as we conclude Genesis and go, go into uh, Exodus. Think of Elijah and what he went through with uh, the prophets of Baal, with Jezebel, uh, with, a, with a discouraging chapter in which he was ready to just go. He believed himself to be the own, uh, uh, to be alone on a lofty hill. And, and that's not really just a pun, Mount Carmel. We see two individuals that honestly, if we studied this out for the next month, I don't think that we would fully understand how significant it is. And Steve, unintentionally, I think, was touching on this in between services. How significant it is that Moses and Elijah are presented in front of these three at this moment, at top of a mountain, I mean, Elijah's not the only one who had Moses, or Moses, mountain experiences. Where did Moses get the law? He came down from that mountain halfway and met Joshua as they heard a, a tumultuous noise below. It sounded like a party or a war. He was in the mountain dwelling with the Lord in a cloud. What they find top this mountain that spoke unto them? A cloud. There's so much more here than, than you're going to get from me today. I pray you go home and study this out. I pray that you go home and just beg the Lord to reveal unto you over and over and over again that which is poured out in the Scriptures. And just this, this one brief moment in his ministry. And keep in mind, this was not to be written or revealed to those who weren't there until after his resurrection. 
What must it have been for Mo like for, for Moses and Elijah? Which we can only speculate. We're not going to fully understand that. But what must it have been like for them? Their attention, if you notice, looking at the scripture, was not on Simon Peter's mouth or James and John and their eagerness to call down fire. The sons of thunder were not even a distraction for Moses and Elijah. You think of all the things that we're distracted by in this world, that's not going to be the case in the next. We even have examples for both Elijah and Moses where in the flesh, in their lives, they were distracted. Not here. Not here. Uh, they didn't stand at the top of the mountain and say, boy, this world's way worse than when we were here. They weren't there to observe the world. They weren't there to observe the church, something that never existed before. They were there to commune with the Son. Which I think lines up with, again, what Steve and I were talking about when we left the room about those who have gone on to glory. I don't believe they're looking down, watching us. And that might hurt your heart a little bit. But if you're in the presence of this, what we're describing here, are you really going to look back at what we're going through here? Well, but they have loved ones and so on and so forth. We could spend a sermon on debunking that as well. But the problems of this life aren't going to the kingdom with us. And nor are we going to have concerns about the problems of this life if we go before the rapture. Understand, beloved, that to be in the presence of this, Elijah and Moses had a type of holy tunnel vision. Only the Lord was there in their communing with him. He permitted, it wasn't Elijah and Moses that permitted uh, James, John, and Simon Peter to see this. It was the Lord Jesus and God the Father. And Jesus was in total control of the entire thing. And God the Father is pleased with the entire thing. And he says, listen to him. This is my son. I wonder how often we think, you know, I'd listen to this thing and that thing. I'd be done with traditions of men or whatever it is the Lord would have for me to do if he'd just give me a transfiguration moment. I don't think you could handle it. I don't think I could handle it. I, I, I want to go on a limb here to say James and John and Simon Peter aren't perfect. But well, they are probably better than me. And they couldn't stay awake for this entire event. But what they experienced was probably more than I could handle. I would probably crumble over the, under the weight of even being there. Of maybe even hearing about it later. No, I, I don't desire that the Lord prove anything to me. Because if he's proving something to me, it's going to only be my depravity. And my lack of worth in the scheme of everything. And I would rather his scripture impress upon me and reveal unto me his imputed righteousness than he reveal anything to me about me. There's nothing there to be proven. The attention of Moses and Elijah, if you'll notice, was fully on the Lord. They had no need of tents, booths, or tabernacles, nor did they have words for these apostles who would be giants among men to us today. That's really what we're trying, I'm trying to drive home here, is that these three... I mean, if, if it was somehow possible that these three could be revealed in front of us speaking to the Lord Jesus, they'd be giants to us. This is the sons of thunder, Simon Peter. But here, they're revealed to be what they truly are, servants to the Lord. And Lo Moses and Elijah, servants to the Lord. And us, servants to the Lord. We get a true feel for where everything fits here. They had no longing for tabernacles. They didn't come back to stay. 
They were captivated by the Lord Jesus and their minds were on the work that he had come to do. That's what they're talking about. I, I know it seems silly to think that whatever power it must have taken to allow for this to happen, that Moses and Elijah would just simply use that time to talk to Jesus about what he already knows about, but I'm sure it's way more than that. The, the narrators that we have here uh, were sleeping through part of it for sure. But I wonder if every time the Lord went off to pray, if this wasn't what it was like for the Lord Jesus, because he could see the things we cannot. I mean, even Elisha knew of the armies that were surrounding, uh, the, the Syrian armies that were surrounding the camps, and he prayed for a servant to see, and his servant saw that there were way more than their enemy. So it's not hard to imagine that if the Lord, every time he went to pray unto the Father, had this type of experience, there's very few times anybody's invited to go with them. They were captivated by the Lord Jesus and their minds were on the work he had come to do. You're here to die at Jerusalem. You know, I, I, when I sometimes think about this situation, I, I wonder if it's not, um, and I can't help but think of it like a movie, if maybe perhaps their lips are moving, but the only things that Simon, Peter, and James and John were permitted to hear was this lesson the Lord had been teaching already. And the reason I come to that conclusion is because I could read, and maybe Steve can attest to this, I can read a book in the Bible over and over and over again and go teach through Genesis and then come back to that same book and see things I didn't see before. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is now revealed unto me based on an understanding of other parts of this living word, that not that he audibly speaks to me, but he's revealing something that was always there that I couldn't perceive. And that's why I kind of look at this event and think that what they heard was revealed unto them based on what the Lord had already been teaching. When we look at it chronologically, he had already been teaching this. So it's not that they, they brought this to the situation and, and that's what they make believe they heard him say. I believe the Holy Spirit was confirming it. The Father was confirming it for them through this experience because it's all they could understand of what was happening. There's a whole lot happening in Revelation if you've never read it before. And the only thing you're going to understand of Revelation the first time you read it through is anything else you understand of the Bible. Now, I wish he was here, but you're not going to read all the other authors in this world about the book of Revelation and understand Revelation. You're going to read the book of the Bible and understand Revelation, or you're going to understand a lot of misconceptions. You're going to be steered wrong if you try to dive into Daniel and you don't put Scripture next to Scripture. You're going to be steered wrong if your idea of holy living is based on anything but the Bible as well. You should place your life next to Scripture and see how it lines up and adjust through repentance. That's the power of Scripture. These three appeared, or these two appeared rather, uh, before these three, but they spoke to Jesus. Such are we with feet in two worlds. Our Spirits, if we're born again, belong to the kingdom. We're pilgrims or, or sojourners here in this land. We work here. We eat here. We care for our families here. But this is not our home. And I believe that's a picture that we see from, a, from the two men that appear there with the Lord Jesus as well. They're visible. They're recognized. But they don't belong in tabernacles and tents anymore. We are seen of men and we work and labor that they might see Christ and ask of the hope that lies within each of us, 1 Peter 3.15. But our fellowship is with Christ Jesus himself, which we see are the, is the only one Moses and Elijah are fellowshipping with. We ask of the weight of that most despicable cross and how it is that he could love us too. Victors do not look back to their own oppression, 
but up to the banner, to their hard-fought victory, and he who made it possible. That's why Elijah and Moses are distracted. It's not because they're heartless. I don't even really believe here that this is a difference between Jews and Gentiles. There's no reason to believe that that's the case, I don't think. But the situation that we have at hand is that their focus is on the victor. Their focus is on this mission. I believe that it was no light thing when the Son of God left the kingdom, left the right hand of the Father to come to the earth to defeat and conquer death, to establish the church, and to point towards the resurrection as the only hope. I believe that was a big deal in heaven too. As excited as we should be as we talked this morning, I bet they are too. The angels attend these very worship services. It's still a big deal. It's still a big deal in heaven. Uh, America can forget the Lord Jesus Christ, can forsake his mission, can forsake the love of the Father. But in the kingdom of heaven, it is still the key most important fact. And you better believe with every victory that's proclaimed here, it's already established, but every victor proclaimed and announced, every victory, hoo-hoo, hoots and hollers and hoorays, and reverence and honor unto the Father who made it all possible. These two, out of the kingdom, are visiting one that they are aware is not in the kingdom. You know, from earthly standpoints, everybody, uh, except for Simon Peter, who was revealed to by the Father, which we've read a couple times now, everybody here is like, is he? Is he? This is the son of the carpenter, so on and so forth. In heaven, someone's missing during this season, during this moment in time. Jesus, the Son, is on earth. Everything is about that mission. Everything is about Jesus. Elijah and Moses aren't watching their lineage, hoping Jesus will come to their house. They're watching the Father as he expresses the, the mission and the goal at hand. And right this very hour, if the rapture is soon to be upon us, their attention is on gearing up for that. Their attention is, here it comes. Their attention is on what the Father has proclaimed since the beginning and before creation would be the end result of all these events. I believe they're getting ready for the thousand-year reign. That's not going to be too long. Can you imagine? Well, we say now it's almost Thanksgiving when our regular conversation in the kingdom might be the thousand-year reign will soon be upon us. Won't that be lovely? I hear that, you know, the, the Father, the Son, when, when the rapture comes and they bring them on up yonder, there's big plans. There's a big to-do. We're going to meet in the square. And you know I'm being glib with a lot of these things. But understand, in, the, in a nutshell here, the priority is not on will Sister Jen pay the bills. That's not the concern in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, will, will Brother Isaac find a, a job that pays three times as much as Subway? Those are our concerns in daily life. And I will wrestle with whether they should be in the scope of things. But that's not what the kingdom of heaven is concerned about. We're called to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very concept of the kingdom of heaven is the reason we're called to repent. And every knee shall bow, as we've already read. But the very concept of the kingdom of heaven is the reason for the message John the Baptist takes. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he loses his head, Jesus takes on the same mission. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's What a wonderful picture. Oh, no, John the Baptist is dead. No, that's not Jesus' standpoint. He's with the Father. 
The word is still the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is hand. If my head is delivered on a saucer tonight, if you are faithful to the Lord and you call another landmark, sovereign grace, uh, Baptist preacher, he's also going to stand in this pulpit and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message will not change because I've perished. Didn't change for John the Baptist. Didn't change after Jesus left. What an encouragement this must have been to Peter after taking the Lord to task over what he had stated he had come for. I like to look at these events through the, through the lens of the people who are there. Simon Peter had just told Jesus, you don't have to die. And again, we, we see a, a, a common thread, right? Simon Peter's ready to build tabernacles so that Moses and Elijah, they don't have to leave. We'll build a tent for them and for you, Jesus. I don't know where he thought him and John and James are going to stay or the rest of the church, but we're going to build these tabernacles so you don't have to leave and you don't have to die and nobody has to be angry at anybody and nobody has to get ugly and nobody has... Whoa, starting to sound familiar. See, the gospel's not that we don't all have to uh, fight and we all should just get along. That's not the gospel. The gospel is repent and believe. The good news is he has conquered death. That his elect shall never be lost and never forsaken. And that's going to lead to disagreements. Because man wants to do it on his own. Man hates the light, loves the darkness. Simon Peter, who just went through that, is now going through this. And you might think, man, there's, if you exclude Judas, there's nine other apostles Jesus could have picked. Why does he keep bringing Simon Peter into these situations where he's going to open up his mouth for me? so that I would know what would happen if I went into this situation and said the things that I was going to say if it were me. That's why Simon Peter's there. Maybe you can relate too. Simon Peter's there because I'm going to speak before I think sometimes, and I need to see what's going to happen. I need to see what he's going to learn. Does he now understand, though? He, he offers to build a tabernacle so that they could stay there. He, he says, it's good for us to be here. So let's stay, cries his heart. We should feel this way in worship as well. It's good for us to be here. Together in this building, in worship, singing, rejoicing. Baptisms are so fun, we should just keep baptizing every day. But how do we share the gospel? We have to go out those doors. This is a good place. It's an encouraging place. It's a strengthening place. It's a good place to be fed spiritually and, of course, carnally in the other room. But the work that we've been called to do is out those doors. The work that we are to attend to is the majority of our time on this earth, and it's out there. Though we may be in the 11th hour, time remaineth on the clock for which our efforts must be accountable. Someone needs to go to the UK. Someone should say, let it be me. Someone needs to take the gospel to Germany. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Peter longed hold on to these, to house them, to keep them, to, to, uh, as the, par the parable of the talents, to just bury them in a little box so they wouldn't get lost, they wouldn't be distorted, they wouldn't uh, fade away. But with the great love that he reciprocated unto our Lord, he was later told to feed the sheep. What we've been given, we are commanded to give away. What we've been taught, we are commanded to teach. And it's confounding to us because we know that things perish in this world. But if we do what we're commanded to do, we'll see that grace abounds. 
we'll see that math doesn't have to work that way with the Lord Jesus. That as we're taught and teach and as we're fed and feed and as we keep giving these things away that the Lord has entrusted us with faithfully, not just selling it out, but giving it away faithfully to others, we'll see that we will never run out of grace in the storehouse. You can't outgive God, as they say. Those here in the fields that, we are, that are white for the harvest, they require that we are faithful unto God. Peter was so caught up in his own offer that we read, while he yet spake, signifying that the voice out of the cloud ceased his babbling. If you go back and read the text, in one of the accounts, it literally says that while Simon Peter yet spake, uh, it's not Luke. Uh, here we go. It's in the Matthew account. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. It says in there, uh, when he was offering to build the three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias, while he yet spake, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, and so on and so on. He was so caught up in what he was going to try and do for Christ, he had to be interrupted by God the Father himself to cease his babbling. The lesson at hand was that because of the love of the Father, it was most important for them to be fed of Christ. Hear ye him. It's probably something I haven't brought out before. But when uh, later he denies the Lord three times, and the Lord comes back and says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Each time saying, Feed the sheep, feed the sheep, feed the sheep. For Simon and Peter, it's like one long sermon. Because here, God the Father even says, Hear ye him. Hear ye him. The, the message for Simon Peter at times was that you're not listening. You're here. You've been brought to this mighty moment. You've seen this majesty, white that's indescribable, light that's pulsating, it, it seems. And all you can do is works, 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 works. He says, listen, hear ye him. He'll tell you where to go. He'll tell you what to do. He will lead you. That's the promise. At its conclusion, the disciples were of no reputation. Face down in humble worship to the king of kings. And he came and touched them. They were sorely frightened. And, and again, to be glib, the cloud just talked to them. So I'm sure they're frightened. But maybe also, after Simon Peter finally stopped talking, they were able to take in some of the other finer details of what's happening. And they're just blown away. When, when the Lord comforts the Apostle John during the Revelation, John is described as being as dead and restored to life. Now, this is a Jesus post-conquering death. This is a Jesus post-resurrection, post-ascension, uh, and I believe it to be literal. Here we see that he's already has that same tendency towards comfort. They're sorely afraid, and he puts his hand upon them. He says in one, con uh, in one of our accounts, Arise and be not afraid. This picture of condescension echoed the very ministry Jesus had come to perform. It was the presence of the triomni, tri-holy God, the Father, that sent men to their knees. And it's a good message that God the Father delivers here. This is my Son, my very loved Son. Hear ye Him. But the result of a message from a tri-holy God is sore afraidness possibly even near death, but an ineptitude, an undoing, as Isaiah describes in Isaiah 6, uh, 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 and essentially of being destroyed. 
They could do nothing except fall to their knees and worship, which is why at the beginning of this message we quoted that every knee shall bow. Direct contact with God the Father in voice alone drops them to their knees, exactly like Scripture said it would. What enables them to stand? Jesus came and touched them, so they rise and be not afraid. That's good news. Here in the last, we see that that which is the key to our focus today. Arise and be not afraid. And they saw no man save Jesus only. The sight of fallen man reminding us of our total depravity, our ineptitude, fills us with dread and fear. Let us aim for seeing Jesus only. Let us live for Jesus only. Elijah and Moses didn't come and touch them. Now, Elijah and Moses were witnesses to uh, amazing things and were used to do amazing things. I mean, think about what Moses did in the presence of Pharaoh. Think about the, the parting of the sea. Think about the, the bitter waters made sweet and so on and so on and so on and so on. Elijah calling down fire, mocking the, the false prophets of Baal. They were used in mighty ways. This moment in time was a declaration of what the Lord Jesus had come to do. He didn't come so Elijah and Moses could go over there and comfort them. He came to die at Jerusalem. He came to condescend to fallen man who could only at best fall to their knees in worship to arise and be not afraid to see Jesus only. There's a lot more that could be said about the transfiguration. You've been immensely patient, so I won't go any further. What an amazing... Uh, five different accounts, beloved. If five different writers attest to this happening, I think it deserves your attention this week. While you're looking for what you're thankful for, and I encourage you to do what we do as a family, not because we're uh, holier than any or anything like that, but it, it helps us with our focus, especially this time of year. Uh, Rebecca just finished it last night. She cuts out a... Uh, I think Livy helped her this year. She cuts out a brown... Uh, cardboard paper tree. We use sticky tack because she's a teacher and that seems to just grow in our house. And she sticks the, tr the tree up on the wall and every night when we do our devotion, and we've been doing it all year, saying what we're thankful for, but we write on different colored leaves what we're thankful for, put our names in the back and we stick it on the wall. And every year her parents came and said, wow, you y'all did that again? That's amazing. It was on the back of our door in the living room in Pemberville. And we put the tree up last night and all of us already have 12 leaves. No, it ain't a Christmas tree. So before you think I just said, put the tree up, you better hear me. It ain't a Christmas tree. It's a thankful tree. Because the root of that tree is forgiveness. And we're thankful for it. I encourage you to do the same. Consider this account. Consider this event that is well documented as occurring. Consider Psalm 136. Give all diligence to give thanks unto the Lord. For he is most deserving. He is only deserving. And he indeed We'll see that every knee shall bow.